Coming up, we hear from Mark Elsden, pastor, entrepreneur, author, and a fellow religious worker here on the campus of UW-Madison. Mark discusses his life and his new book, We Aren't Broke, Uncovering Hidden Resources for Mission and Ministry. All that right after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, this is Dan at Upper House, and welcome back to the podcast. We're really excited for this episode. It's one of those ones that's a happy coincidence, a happy intersection of local friends and their new book releases. It actually happens more often than you think. If you were to visit Upper House, you'd notice that we are in a neighborhood of the UW campus that is dense with religious organizations. Upper House is one of the newer organizations, just a few years old, but many of them are decades old, even more than a century old. And one of the oldest, and one that we can actually see from our location on campus, is Press House, a Presbyterian-run campus and student housing ministry. And Press House dates all the way back to the early 20th century and was actually one of the first campus churches at UW-Madison. Today, it's led by a husband and wife team, Mark Elsden and Erica Liu. Mark is the guest on the pod this week as we talk about his new book. Mark has numerous roles in addition to being the executive director at Press House. He's the co-founder of Rooted Good and owner of Elsden Strategic Consulting. Both provide nonprofits with a bunch of different services, strategic planning, revenue generation, governance, and other types of services. He's also the president of the board of directors for Working Capital for Community Needs based in Madison, providing microfinance for working-class people in Latin America. So, Mark brings a lot of experience, a lot of insight, and in this episode, he talks with John Terrell, our executive director here at Upper House, about Mark's new book, We Aren't Broke, Uncovering Hidden Resources for Mission and Ministry, out with Erdman's Press this month. As you'll hear, the book is focused on reimagining money and mission, especially for ministries and nonprofits that have historic financial assets that they're trying to plan for the future with. Mark is also an advocate of impact investing. That's financial investing aimed at social impact as well as monetary return, trying to balance those two things. And that's a practice that Mark has championed himself and that played a particularly important role in the history of Press House, as you'll hear. So with that, uh, without further ado, here's another Upwards conversation with John and Mark Elston. So, Mark, we're going to go way back and start with your life growing up. I'd love to hear about where you grew up. What was it like in your neighborhood? Take us way back. Yeah, so I grew up um, in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, My parents are immigrants from England, from the northeast of England. Uh, And so that really shaped uh, shaped me significantly, being uh, second-generation American born to immigrant parents. And uh, I then proceeded to move around quite a bit um, when I was young. Uh, We lived in the Atlanta area. We lived uh, back in the Chicago area again. We moved to California, the Bay Area. Uh, So moving regularly was sort of a part of my life, which I didn't like in many ways, but also in other ways it 
helped me gain a broader understanding of different kinds of people and uh, and a broader understanding of, of the world, you might say. And especially um, traveling back to England to visit relatives there when I was young would spend I would spend a significant time every summer um, over in England, uh, which was which was really sort of helpful in broadening my understanding of the world, too. Yeah. Was was there a particular neighborhood? Maybe it was your time in England that really stands out as you look back over your growing up years. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you asked that about the neighborhood. And again, I think I would say no, in the sense that I, because I was born to immigrant parents, there's always this element of slightly being outside the neighborhood. So I've lived in multiple neighborhoods, and many of them have been nice and wonderful in their own ways. But there was always a sense that there was a little bit of a disconnect for me because I wasn't from there. I guess I would answer it that way, that I feel more like a slightly global citizen than I do um, tied to a particular neighborhood uh, when I was growing up. My immediate family was quite close, the four of us, my parents, myself and my sister. Again, I think in part because we were always slightly new to a place through their immigrant status and then later through our moves as we moved into different neighborhoods around the country. Uh, The longest I lived anywhere when I was growing up was about five years in one neighborhood. Okay, yeah, so you really moved around. Well, I'm sure that served you well as a pastor just to have that global outlook and and those experiences living in in many parts of this country and even overseas. Mm -hmm. Well, good. Um, You know, you've you've had a lot of roles. uh, and you serve in a lot of roles. You're an author, you're a pastor, you're a consultant, you're a social entrepreneur. I wonder if you might highlight one life experience or person that's been essential in forming who you are today. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think probably first of a series of experiences or, or, or over a series of years when I was in college, um, I, I went to college in Berkeley, California, and had the opportunity to get introduced through a Christian ministry to a way of engaging uh, people uh, without homes, homeless people um, on the streets in Berkeley, uh, just to get to know them. So my roommate and I um, in in college, we would we would actually well, we started out by bringing a camp stove out into one of the parks, People's Park, it was called, in the center of Berkeley and cooking uh, up hot chocolate on this camp stove, and then just sharing that with the folks that were out on the streets. There's a lot of folks um, without homes in, in the Berkeley area. And just getting to know them. There was no agenda. There was no um, particular aim other than to understand who they were, get to know their stories, uh, on occasion offer a prayer uh, for them if that was something that they were open to or interested in. And we did this for four years, actually, all through undergraduate. And then I continued it, bringing high school students to do a similar thing um, in a couple of the following years. So probably about six years uh, of doing that and getting to know some of the people very well, some of the, the regulars, so to speak, and then also meeting all kinds of people. I think it shaped me in definitely in some of my understandings around economics and around the social system that people live in and that we live in, it certainly introduced me to a whole different set of people whose experience was very different from mine growing up. And it gave me a passion for ministry. I mean, a passion for 
connecting with people, for understanding people, for uh, being involved in their lives. It was probably the single most instrumental uh, thing in shaping my call to ministry. And then I think finally, it was maybe one of the first examples of entrepreneurism in that we started this whole ministry that then became quite significant and involved loads and loads of people over time um, beyond just us that started it. And so we would involve groups of people and then it sort of multiplied and other groups would do follow the model and so on. Um, And so there was, I guess, that element of sort of entrepreneurship, not in a business sense, but in a starting up thing sense. Yeah, I can see the the aggregate experience, how impactful it was. Do you, was there a particular conversation or, or a day or an evening? There may not be. It may just all blend together. But I'm wondering if there was was a, a single experience that stands out or exemplifies the six years in, in, in some ways, the, the kind of impact those six years had on you. I'll recount one experience I had where I was we were we were offering some hot chocolate and a conversation with a with a group of people just outside People's Park um just off Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley and this woman offered to give us some money to to pay for this hot chocolate it was a couple dollars I think she tried to put into my hand and I said to her, oh, no, we don't, you know, no, no, we don't need that. You don't need to give us, you don't need to give us anything. And she turned and looked at me with great frustration and, and anger, really, and said, Who, how dare you not take this from me? I'm offering you a gift and you uh, have no right to simply offer me something without being willing to accept anything in return. And that was pretty pivotal in my thinking, uh, shaping my thinking about reciprocity and about what it means to engage with people truly and not in a paternalistic, patronizing sort of a way where we had something to give to her and she had nothing to give to us. Which unfortunately, I think the privileged uh, often (laughs) often do in the way we approach um, those that uh, that are more vulnerable or in greater need. But it turns out she had not only, of course, some money to give, but herself. But that was indicative, that experience of being willing to not just um, give something, but to receive something and be open to true relationship as opposed to some sort of transactional thing where I give her and I feel good and then we walk away. Yeah, and you write about this this um, relationship in your book, this encounter, and it's, it's really powerful. I, I appreciated reading about it. And an important lesson around just the dignity of economics when when economics and relationships function well. Um, you know, I, I'd love to ask this question about a crisis of faith. You work with students and faculty and serve as, you know, a, a pastor to the university. I know you help others wrestle and, 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 and really engage their own crises, overcome their own crises. But I'm wondering if you've had a crisis of faith, or just a major crisis in life? And what was that like spiritually for you? I think most of us, when we're honest, have those times, multiple times probably throughout life. I personally am a, I'm a, I'm a big believer that, that doubt is a part of faith and questioning is a part of faith. Maybe because I work in a university setting and I love university students, I'll keep drawing on stories from my college years, but uh, I do recall being a freshman in a world religion class at the University of California, Berkeley. 
which, as you might imagine, was not a Christian class, but um, Christianity was taught alongside world religions. And of course, coming in, I was coming in with a fairly defined understanding, you might say, of what the Christian faith was as a practicing Christian, as a fairly devout Christian. And it was very unsettling, let's put it that way, to, uh, to encounter the Jesus that was taught in this course. And I, at first, uh, tackled it as if I could somehow argue <laughs> my way into the, you know, argue the professor into belief or into a different understanding. And then I came to realize over the course of the semester that that was, of course, absurdly arrogant and foolish and instead, I stepped back and was able to start to just try to learn something and to listen to what was, to what was being said. And there are certainly elements of the way Jesus was taught in that class that didn't resonate with me as a, as a practicing Christian rather than just an academic studying, studier of, of it. But there were also some elements that were really quite interesting and, and provocative and true, in fact, it turned out when I went to seminary and studied it more deeply, that there were a great deal of things being taught in that course that were accurate and true that I just didn't know. And it, so that was a lesson, I think, for me in not running away from those challenging moments or those sort of crises moments, but like pausing and just seeing what's going on here, what is happening here, what of this is really dangerous or problematic, which probably isn't much, and what if this is something I can learn from and it turned out that my experience at Berkeley really, really developed my faith, didn't undermine it in a, in a way that, you know, was negative. It actually left me, I felt, with a much more realistic and stronger and vibrant faith. I hear that a lot from a lot of UC Berkeley grads. You know, you expect, <laughs> um, and it's, uh, the same could be said for UW-Madison, right? But, yeah. um, but I know so many Christians that are thriving— and and really um, engaging their faith in really holistic ways that went through UC Berkeley. So yeah, a testament to whatever's in the water out there, um, and and just the good teaching and just the experiences. I guess maybe the challenges of of really trying to live in that context, live faithfully in that context. Yeah, people told me when I went, well, you better be careful. You might lose your faith at a school like that. And I I wasn't afraid of that. No, I fa- I think in fact both God is present at places like UW-Madison and, and UC Berkeley, and also the rigor of some of those conversations and some of what's going on in universities like that really helps refine and, and deepen faith. I'd love to explore your educational background, You've because uh, I think the models in each of these programs are a little bit different, and would love to get just a little reflection from you. You have a BA in psychology from UC Berkeley as we've been discussing, a Master of Divinity from Princeton University, uh, or Princeton Seminary, and uh, an MBA from UW-Madison. What is one thing that stands out about each of those experiences, or maybe even more interestingly, what is kind of one thing you learned across those different educational platforms in the way that they deliver education? Because um, I think an MBA experience is is really different from a seminary experience. And as you look back, kind of stand back now from all of those experiences, what's one thing that kind of stands out in the aggregate? Well, I think I'd answer that in a couple of different ways. One, in some ways, I think there's a similarity to all of them in that 
I felt like the core educational outcome um, at Berkeley as a psychology major and doing an MDiv and an MBA was learning to think like a psychology researcher slightly as an undergrad, learning to think like a theologian slightly as an MDiv student, and learning to think with a business mind, again, slightly with an MBA. I mean, these are all limited, of course, but you are sort of ideally learn not not a whole lot of content that you remember forever in your life, but you learn how to think in the way of of those roles or in those disciplines, which then can be applied across life and across, you know. And so in that sense, I think they were all effective at doing that. What first comes to mind, though, about all my experiences there were actually things outside the classroom, to be totally honest. So in, in Berkeley, it, it would by far and away be the exposure to diversity. Mm-hmm. Diversity, again, like I mentioned, of people, different economic backgrounds, but also racial, ethnic diversity, uh, sexual orientation, diversity, diversity of every kind um, was so incredible at a place like Berkeley. And uh, I loved that. At Princeton, it would be community, actually, like what it means to be in community. My wife and I lived in a married student housing that was super, super tight-knit community of folks, and that was incredible. I mean, I would learn more about how to create community by being in community than anything else um, I've experienced in my life. Um, And then I guess in the MBA, probably the thing that stands out to me is the, the sense of honest inquiry and learning that the cohort had. These were seasoned, experienced leaders in this program that I was a part of, and people didn't posture or feel the need to present themselves in any particular way. They were really just quite interested in how do I improve as a leader? How do I improve as an executive? And that was incredible, actually, and refreshing and really, really powerful. Yeah, good. Really interesting insight. Well, Mark, you race bicycles and you do it at a high level. Um, what is it about this hobby that energizes you? And, and, and I, I'd like to explore a little bit the metaphor. Use this, this metaphor of racing throughout the book. And we're going to talk about the book. But, but why is this such a good metaphor for social impact investing and some of the other ideas you explore in the book? So it's risky to start me on the cycling topic because we could be here the rest of the day on that. We could do a whole bunch of podcasts on that. We'll have you. We'll have you back maybe for a a bicycle, a a bicycle maintenance uh, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Just last weekend, I did a 200 mile gravel race in Kansas. That was something else. Um, I mean, I I guess for me, cycling is is hugely life giving. Uh, When I'm riding alone, it's it's a it's a prayerful activity. It's a chance to be outside in creation. It's a chance to. I, I find it easier to pray in movement in a sense, you know, to sort of uh, meditate in, in action. Um, I, I like to be active, and that's great. It's obviously, of course, health-wise really good. It's fun to ride fast. Um, but also riding with people, for me, is a big part of my community. So it, it's amazing what sort of conversations you can have with someone when you're riding with them for hours and hours at a time, and multiple times a week, and um, it, it's, it's fantastic for that. For me, um, I mean, I draw a lot of analogies from cycling uh, with regard to impact investing and and social enterprise and so and so on. And I think probably the one guiding uh, initial metaphor is 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 knowing where you're going. 
So looking ahead at the road ahead um, and knowing where you're going. So in my mind, impact investing and social enterprise is all predicated upon clear mission and having a clear sense of the impact that we want to have in the world, the, the mission impact uh, first over, over financial impacts. And uh, in a similar way, when you're riding a bike, it's essential to be, to be looking at the spot you want to ride and not at the other wrong spot. So people will often struggle when they first start riding to ride in a straight line or to avoid hitting potholes or, or to hit, avoid hitting the curb. And it's usually because they're looking at those things. If you look at the pothole, you're going to ride into the pothole. If you look at the curb, you're going to ride into the curb. If you look at the rock you're trying to avoid, you're probably going to hit the rock. You basically go where your eyes are looking. And uh, I was just just teaching my daughter this the other day when we were mountain biking um, on some trails. Uh, I just you got to look peripherally at the rock, but you have to look at the clear path ahead where you want to go. That if you f- f- fix your eyes there, that's where you'll actually end up. And I think in many ways, social enterprise, um, impact investing, and any social impact work is similar. There's a whole slew of rocks, potholes, curbs, side tracks, and so on available to us all the time. And if we focus on those, we're going to get derailed by them all the time as well. But if we can kind of look at where we want to be and where we're trying to get to over time, that will lead to, to greater outcomes. A lot of great lessons there, and and I think really important lessons for leadership more broadly. Let's start to turn toward the book. We're not quite there, but I want to I want to ease us into your growing interest in business. Uh, you're trained as a, um, I mean, your undergraduate degrees in psychology. Then you go on and do training as a as a theologian, pastor. Where did your first inclinations or your growing interest in business, social entrepreneurship, how did it begin? Where did it begin? I mean, I think in some ways I always had some interest in business, even as a, as a young person. But I would say m- more recently, uh, it began when I first started my work at Press House. So when I joined Press House at the University of Wisconsin, um, we were tasked with starting a ministry back up uh, sort of from dormancy, but also with exploring this idea of, of developing property and building student housing and running essentially a social business. I had no idea what that was going to involve. Yeah, we're gonna, and we're going to get there. We're going to go into a lot of detail yeah. around that because it's a fascinating story. And that really is what kind of sparked for me the, um, the, the realization that um, effective business practices uh, can be applied um, in social settings, social impact settings, um, for really significant outcomes. Right. That was furthered when I got involved in this in this process, which I think we're going to talk about of, of of securing an investment from a denominational partner, and then realizing even more so how that how investment and assets can be can be leveraged for social good. So all of that is what led me to to actually follow through on what some of my friends said when I first started the work at Press House, which was you should have done an MBA instead of an MDiv. When they would hear about the stories, I would tell my other, you know, pastor friends, recent graduates from seminary, here's what we're doing. And they would listen to it and they would say, well, I mean, you should have done an MBA instead of what we did at seminary. Like, how is, how how are you doing this stuff? Um, The answer was mostly lots of good people around me to, to, to get help from. But that, 
stuck in my head, I guess. And uh, in the end, um, when I was thinking about doing some further education a few years ago, I, I thought, you know, I do think the MBA is 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 going to be most useful for this marrying of of business, entrepreneurship, uh, and social faith-based impact, which is what I'm really interested in. Yeah, and this is a good time just to interject and say that you co-pastor uh, Press House with Erica, your wife, and you're really a, a dynamic team. I think you've worn the hat mostly as executive director, right? So you've handled a lot of the business-oriented kinds of decisions. Uh, she, she has um, taken some of the other parts of the portfolio. But it's really been a team dynamic, and the book really reflects the team dynamic um, that the two of you have embraced. Correct. Yeah, I, I think you'll mostly find me using the term we rather than I yes, when I right. talk about all of this. So that's why, yes, because it has been very much a team effort. Well, good. I wanted to make sure that I could find a, a moment to give a shout out to Absolutely. Erica because she's a big part of this. So let's, let's um, I'd love for you to define a few terms, um, and we're going to get into some of this. I, I think this is a good transition, transition toward the specifics of your book, but I'd love to hear you reflect first on the purpose of a couple of different institutions in society. Um, this will set the, the biggest picture I think we can set for, for this conversation. In your view, what's the purpose of business? Let's start there. What's the purpose of business? I think most broadly, it's it's a way of organizing um, people uh, or teams uh, or in order to accomplish something. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the case of business, it's typically organizing in such a way as to offer goods or services to somebody else. So if some set of people offering goods or services to some other set of people who want to purchase those goods or services. Um, I mean, that's sort of at its most base uh, what's happening there. I think business, when done well, is attuned to all the different stakeholders in that system. And that includes not just shareholders or owners of the business, but the customers, of course, but also employees, the community within which a business is situated, even the environment, the physical environment and the impact the business might have there. So all of that is is a sort of what a business is responsible for, not just simply um, to make as much profit as possible. Yeah, good. That's a, a real holistic definition of business. And I think sometimes not the definition that's often cast in more pop- popular culture and other settings. But I think, yeah, I think I, I'm glad you sort of highlight that because I think most business people go to work each day trying to do the right thing and yeah. thinking about lots of different stakeholders. Yes, and I actually think more and more, I mean, certainly the generation of students that we work with now um, are highly attuned to some of those to some of those issues, and more and more people really want to connect their work with meaning and not just simply to make some money. What about the role of government? Oftentimes, you say the word government around business people, and you know you, you can sort of watch their their smile drop a little bit. There, there's often a contested view of business um, alongside government or government alongside business. But how would you define the role of of government? So again, I'd start with the same point, which is it's, a, it's an organizing of, it's an intentional choice to organize in a certain way. So for, for a set of people on a broader scale, in the case of government, to, to choose how we're going to live together, so to speak. How are we going to exist together? I think broadly, in my view, government exists to promote the conditions under which people can have food, have housing, have health care, have education, 
have opportunity for fulfillment in their life. With regard to its connection to business, I think that government has a role to play in appropriate regulation of business um, and regulation of free markets in such a way that it promotes uh, and supports all of the people in the system, not just the ones that hold the capital or not just the ones that sort of have the, 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 the most, but in fact is actually preferencing maybe even the government, uh, those that have the least. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of um, Franklin Roosevelt, who said the test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. Hmm. I think I would say that to me is the role of government, um, to be that check in the system, so to speak, and to be making sure that those that are the most vulnerable are taken care of. Right, right, good. And then what about the role of nonprofit uh, institutions and then more particularly the role of the church? Right, so nonprofit institutions fill an interesting space and that is often they kind of fill a space where there is no market. So they will they will get involved in providing services where services aren't bought or sold, so to speak, either because the, 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 the user doesn't have the funds to do it or isn't able to afford it or because there isn't really a standard market. So in a sense, donors or, or grants or whatnot might step in to sort of be a third party funding this interesting sort of turned on its side market, you might say. So they fill a really important role because if it was just up to business where, you know, where, where money could be made to handle all of that, there would be some big gaps. They all relate to each other, of course, right? Because if business takes care of more, if government takes care of more, then perhaps nonprofits actually don't need to take care of as much. But there's this interesting kind of dynamic where they all sort of interplay with each other. And every society, of course, sort of has chosen through various means, hopefully a, a ballot box, but have chosen how to structure that and how to kind of balance those different different ways of addressing uh, the, the, the mixture of, of need. Purpose of the church. Yeah, the church. Yeah. I think fun. I mean, I could give you the, the seminary answer, the, the sort of, you know, uh, catechesis answer. But I think I would just basically say the church is, the, is, a, is a, again, an intentional organizing of, of people of faith to come together in community to worship God. And by worship, I mean that as, as broadly, as, uh, very broadly. So certainly worship in the traditional sense of a Sunday service or some other service. But I also mean that in the sense of, of social justice work or of engaging in the community with, with the needs of the community is to me all a worshipful act. All, those are all um, acts of worship. If we, if we take seriously Matthew 25, uh, that, that the church is, is called to see Jesus in, in everyone and certainly in the least of these, then, then that, is the, that is the role of the church. This is a big question. Another whole podcast could be done on that, of course. Is the, the, there's a whole lot of debate going on, I think, in society is what is the role of the church? And, and, uh, and I think a lot of people are saying they're not sure, which is perhaps why fewer are going. <laughs> yeah. And, you, and, and what I love about your book is you push the boundaries of this. You, you try, you know, you expand, I think, the vision for the church and society uh, and bring a lot of these ideas together that, that worship really is more than just the Sunday service. It's really around service 
and vocation in the world as well. So I think your book does a great job of that. A couple terms, um, and then we're going to get into the specifics of the Prez House and the um, the renovation and the housing and all the things that you've layered in that make it a really vibrant ministry. But let's just get a few terms out, and I just just some quick answers on this, okay? So we'll just kind of move through this. But there are typically three sources of income for nonprofits, um, contributed income, earned income, and investments. I wonder if you could just quickly define what each of those three are. Yeah. So contributed income is, is money that's donated. So grants, individual donations, uh, corporate donations, that sort of a thing. Earned income would be money that is derived from some sort of service that's provided or something sold perhaps. Um, so some sort of, you might call it business venture where income is earned. Um, and then investment income is, is the, there are a number of organizations that have um, invested assets uh, which sit in some form of investment vehicle, and then they generate kind of a fi- they generate a financial return, which would be investment income. Those are typically the three main sources of income for most nonprofits, and some mix of those. Traditional two pocket model of church funding. You you talk about this in the book, but if you could just just describe that traditional two pocket model, what is that? What do you mean by that? So. It- a traditional two-pocket model is this idea that we have in one pocket money that we make from something and then in another pocket money that we give away um, or, or use to, to help people or sort of to do work with, to do our mission with. And we individuals sometimes think this way. I think also churches do. So often churches have derived income from um, offerings and so on or, again, from investment income from some source totally unrelated to where they're then going to use the money. So they bring the income in and then they spend income. They spend that money somewhere else to serve some need that they're trying to meet perhaps of their members or of their community. And a very obvious model would be a food pantry or something like that. So money might come in and then money goes out to spend on the food pantry. That, that is a traditional model of the two pocket model. Okay, yeah. good. And, and, the, the the practices that you've implemented push against the traditional two pocket model. So we're going to get into yeah. some or at of least the, add to add to it. Yeah, maybe not not yeah. um, contradict it, but add to it, bring nuance to it. Social enterprise or redemptive entrepreneurship. How would you define those terms? Yeah, there's a whole sl- slew of different ways people talk about this too. I guess I would most simply say it is um, some sort of activity that has a primarily a social purpose, a social impact purpose, but that also generates revenue in some way. So earned income in some way. Uh, So a social business of some sort. Um, Social enterprise, I think, is often preferred because it diminishes the word business, but it's sort of the same thing. And and I think people use redemptive entrepreneurship sometimes to put a a faith-based slant on it, but in a sense, it's also... If you want to get super theological, (laughs) you go that route. Right. Okay, they all mean the same thing. They're, they're in basically my mind, the they all sort of basically mean doing something for good that ha- that involves some business element to it or some money transaction involved in it as part of the way it works. Okay, yeah. good. Impact investing and blended return. Impact investing and blended return are very intertwined. This is the idea that when investing, you are not simply looking for financial return on the investment. So a very traditional model of investing is I put my money into something, a, a stock and a company, a bond, 
whatever it might be, a real estate venture, whatever it might be. And I don't care at all what's happening with that money. I just want the return on that investment, the 5%, the 8%, the 12%, whatever it is you can get from that investment. That's the very traditional approach to investing. And you're simply looking for the greatest number you can get uh, in return at the lowest risk uh, with your money. Blended return, blended value, and impact investing challenges that idea and says, no, it does matter what's going on with the money while it's being invested. And it has an impact, both positive or negative. It doesn't always be positive. It can be a negative impact. Um, And recognizing that, and so choosing to invest not only with the financial return in mind, but also with the social return that might be happening as a result of that investment. So a blended return is to say, let's put together the dollars, the, the actual dollars we get back with the, the social impact, or perhaps even somehow kind of monetize the impact uh, that that investment is having in the world, in the environment, in the people's lives that are impacted by it. Good. And finally, assets in transition. So this is a term that is being used in the church quite a bit right now around uh, church buildings in particular um, that are in transitional phase of what are they going to be used for. So many, many churches, uh, thousands, tens of thousands will be closing in the next five to ten years in the United States. There's no question about that. That is simply the fact. So what's going to happen to those buildings is, is, the, is the big important question with regard to that. And those are the assets in transition. What is happening to those buildings? Are they going to be repurposed? Are they going to be simply sold, torn down, sold and renovated to some, into something else? What's going to happen with those, with those assets? And, uh, and we're definitely in a transitional period over the next decade, um, that's going to see a lot more wrestling with that question. And that is really, those terms are really important. And that final term is really important to your story. Coming to UW-Madison in the early 2000s, and you and Erica arrive, and this is really the, the kernel of the book. It's the title of the book, um, just out with Erdman's Press, um, We Aren't Broke. And I'm not remembering the subtitle, and I didn't walk in with my... Do you remember the subtitle? We Aren't Broke, Uncovering Hidden Resources for Mission and Ministry. Perfect subtitle, because the book is really exploring um, creative social entrepreneurship, particularly um, in your case, utilizing real estate. So I wonder if you could take us back to your arriving in Madison, um, and what situation did you find? You and Erica find yourself in? Yeah, it, <laughs> It's remarkable. So we had a very young child. She was three or four months old when we first arrived in Madison. And we had never been to Madison. We had flown out a couple times to interview with the board and, and to sort of see the place. But we, when we arrived, Press House was essentially a dormant ministry. Um, it was a, a building, a, a historic, landmark, Gothic church building that had been around uh, since the early 1930s. Uh, The ministry had been around since 1907, the building since the 1930s, but had essentially been unmanaged, unrepaired for a long time, the building itself. And so the roof was leaking. 
Um, I was fixing the toilet with paper clips when groups were using the space. And it had become a sort of community center of sorts, which was wonderful in the sense that there were groups using the space, all kinds of groups, Christian groups, all kinds of community groups, social justice groups, the jugglers, the UW jugglers would use the chapel to because it was had a high ceiling. High ceilings, yes. And so they could juggle in it. You they, know, so they, they weren't juggling fire sticks. I don't know. Like I maybe I don't know. I think it was probably mostly oranges or whatever they juggle. But in any case, it was it was well used by community groups, but there was no active programming or ministry happening by the the owners of the building, by Press House itself at yeah. the time we arrived. And for our listeners, Press House has just prime real estate. It is center of the campus, right across from the library, right on State Street. I mean, it's you, you have to imagine kind of bullseye of the campus. Um, th- this is the location that Press House occupies. Yeah, it's yeah, it couldn't be any better. It's a fantastic spot. And of course, the university noticed this. And so the board and the university had been in conversation multiple times about the university purchasing the building and the property. We had a we had a, uh, an empty parking, well not an empty parking lot, but a very underutilized parking lot uh, behind the the historic church building that the university was interested in purchasing. And then also our denominational parent body was um considering very seriously selling the property uh, and basically getting out of, out of having a campus ministry center at the University of Wisconsin at all. They did, in fact, sell the properties in Iowa and in Minnesota, the big schools there. And now, if you look at those schools, there's no centers there, and there's very little to no Presbyterian campus ministry presence at all. And the funds generated from those sales has, has basically been used. So... Very different than our story. Uh, but in any case, when we came, there were zero students involved. There was a tiny bit of money coming in from donors. Um, the building was in dire need of, of repair and updating. And <laughs> I don't know what brought us to, to, to try, I guess. But there was, I guess, a sense that there was an opportunity to do something. And there was certainly an open door to try something new because there was not much to lose. Um, it was, you know very close to closure or sale anyways. So why not give a try to something different, to something new? Yeah. So what did you do? So we had basically two tasks before us. One was start a campus ministry, which we had no idea how to do that actually, but that was, <laughs> that was the, the first and primary task. And then the other was to um, assess the feasibility, um, uh, working with some consultants and contractors, assess the feasibility of building student housing on the parking lot next to the historic church building as both a ministry uh, as well as a, as, a, as a revenue source and a financial model. So that's basically what we started doing on day one. So this was a $17 million deal. Talk about the structure of the deal. What constituted, you know, what made up the $17 million? How did the, the, the denomination get involved? And how did you finally structure the deal and get the, get the deal done? So initially, uh, the deal was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a $16.9 million debt that we initially took to, to build this seven-story uh, building that houses about 240 students. And initially, the whole, it was all structured with bonds, so most of it was tax-exempt bonds that were supported by a letter of credit from a regional bank. Uh, and then there was a, a separate taxable bond that uh, covers the religious space, uh, 
um, because tax-exempt bonds can't be used for sectarian religious space um, purposes. So we had this this mixture of of two different bonds that made up that that money. And that was the first five years of our financing was structured that way. And it worked quite well for us. The financial model worked reasonably well. Filling a building that's brand new is always a challenge. We went through a couple different management companies to get settled on that. There were a whole slew of challenges with regard to property taxes and all sorts of other issues that, again, could be many podcasts. But What happened ultimately was that in 2008, of course, we went through this financial crisis the world over, um, largely around uh, property, housing, that really impacted lending significantly on a whole lot of different levels. And we were coming up on refinancing, renewing our letter of credit on the debt that we had uh, just after that event, a couple years after that event it would have been. And so we were able to essentially borrow pre-2008 more money than we could then borrow again uh, five years later. Uh, What that meant was we were short a couple million dollars. um, Like so many realists, like so many homes, right? Exactly. Like so many homes, essentially underwater. We had no trouble actually paying our payment, making our payments. It, It was that the calculations that went into valuing commercial real estate like ours, residential commercial real estate, had declined. So the, just the, the, the rates that were used, the, the calculations that were used to value it had changed. So the value came down. And then loan-to-value ratios that banks would lend at came down as well, or uh, went up, I guess you could say. Like, we couldn't borrow as much as we had originally. So we got caught with this sort of $2.5 million gap, which was, of course, significant and problematic. We did not have $2.5 million dollars. Uh, to come up with, again, like many homeowners who suddenly found themselves in that sort of position as well. So that led to many sleepless nights for me and all sorts of ideas, dreaming, thinking about what we could do, and desperation in large extent, to be honest, which ultimately um, led me to develop this idea of of securing an investment um, in our project from a from a denominational partner. So it took about a year of work, but I and our board members uh, had multiple conversations with the Synod of Lakes and Prairies, which is a denominational body of the Presbyterian Church USA. And they decided ultimately to um, take a quarter of their $10 million endowment out of traditional investments, out of stocks and bonds and where it was, where it was traditionally invested, and then invest it in real estate real estate at the University of Wisconsin, um, Presbyterian-owned real estate, in fact, Press House, us. And so that's what they did. And uh, we still have a large portion of that funding as part of our current financing mix. They actually renewed that some years later, and, uh, and it has proven to be a really powerful impact investment. So they have money in our project, which, has, which allowed us to secure the rest of our financing, and allowed us to continue on with our ministry and serve the hundreds and hundreds of students we serve every year. And then we pay them back a return on that investment. So we actually return to them funds, which they then use to fund their programming. It's a win-win-win all around, and all the money sort of stays in the family, so to speak, and gets used for ministry. All of that, the whole thing, the whole transaction, all gets used for ministry. 
Yeah, this, so this is such a powerful lesson. I think at some point in the book you talk about in North Carolina, the third largest real estate owner is the Methodist Church. Correct. So you have all this property that the church holds, and there are ways to put it to work that doesn't deplete the value of the property, maintains the value of the property, right? the real estate, and and, 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 and brings an infusion of capital into ministry. Right. Um, and so it's a win-win because you're not sort of depleting or, or extracting or drawing down capital. You're, you're creating new capital in, in a lot of ways. So as a great comparison, I mentioned Iowa and Minnesota, these campuses where properties were sold, and there's no property there. There's most of the money's gone, and there's no Presbyterian ministry there. Contrast that to here in Madison, where we have a property worth probably $25 million now. I haven't had it appraised recently, but I'm sure it's significant. It generates more than $2 million a year in revenue. We've paid a significant amount of return back to the synod that they have then used for their ministry. And we've served thousands and thousands and thousands of students since those properties were sold and we've done this work. So it's, it's just dramatically different, the outcome. And, and, this, and the book gets into this in incredible detail. And one of the things I want you to highlight at this point, Mark, is the Press House Apartments, the apartment building that you built on the empty, on the parking lot. The, the students you serve through um, addiction recovery and some of the other things, I mean, this is a, a story of the ministry that I didn't know about, actually, until, I mean, as close as, I mean, I knew a little bit about, I guess I'd heard about, but as closely as, you know, we're located and as much interaction as we have, I didn't know the extent of this this part of your ministry. I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, that's the most exciting part of it, to be honest with you, for me. And it was in the end for the Synod. I went back in, in sort of working on this book and, and had a conversation with the treasurer of the Synod at the time and asked, why did you ultimately agree to make this investment? Because in some ways, it's not the wisest financial investment to, to, to put it all in one place. Uh, it's sort of a riskier move, right, to put a whole quarter of your endowment in one one location, one property. And in the end, we gave them all the financials. We gave them all the projections. We answered all the questions about worst case scenarios. All the business model had to work. It was They weren't going to do it if it didn't work, right, the business model. But ultimately, that's not what convinced them. It wasn't the money. It was the mission. It was the impact in students' lives that convinced them that this was worth doing and that they could put their money to work in the lives of students in a Presbyterian ministry as opposed to helping Jeff Bezos with a little more cash to build the next Alexa device. So that's ultimately what it was for them, and it is for us. We're not in this work to be property developers. We're in this work to transform lives and impact students. So all that's to say, our um, programming in the apartment building is, to me, some of the most exciting and kind of cutting-edge stuff that we do. And perhaps getting back to that question way back about what the church is, the role of the church— The truth is, I think a lot of people today just aren't interested in participating or buying, you might say, what the church has to offer, if what the church has to offer is worship on Sunday. I'm a pastor. (laughs) I love worship. I love worship on Sunday. Um, I'm not denigrating that in any way. But the, the, the truth of the matter is that a lot of people, they're just not interested in that, or they're not interested in that if that's all church is. They want something that engages in, in, in sort of the wholeness of their life. For us, we have this opportunity not just to connect with students one hour a week or a couple hours a week in a Bible study or a, or a service, 
but almost 24-7. They live in our building. And during COVID, this was particularly true. 95% of our residents last year during the COVID year engaged with programming in our apartment building. 95%. That's just a huge number because we accept anyone who wants to, who wants to live there. But they were incredibly grateful for the, the, the hospitality we offered, the support we offered, um, the COVID safety that we engaged in and all of that. And we have almost half of the residents now involved in purposeful living communities, sub-communities, intentional living communities that are themed around all sorts of things, health and wellness, um, interfaith dialogue, uh, community service, and the one you mentioned, recovery, addiction recovery. Uh, which is one of my favorites. Um, it's a very small group of, of students, but it's absolutely transformative. There are a number of graduates of UW-Madison who would not have graduated were it not for this program. Um, uh, sober living, a true sober living program with, with a fairly heavy support associated with it uh, and the scholarship associated with it that helped them uh, finish school. When most of these students had tried multiple times to finish school and and, and ended up relapsing and whatnot. And uh, this case, many of them finish and complete. And it's utterly transformative for them. A w- wonderful testimony to, to the ministry. And I think just, you know, all the, all the things that you're about, really, really powerful. Why is this book, why is your book so important at this moment in history? You talked about just the, the amount of church real estate and some of this turning and, um, you know, people are going to, elder boards and synods and other kinds of ecclesiastical bodies, ecclesial bodies are going to need to make decisions about real estate. But why so? Why such an important message at this point in time? I mean, from my view, it's an intersection of these two things that are going on. One is, I mean, and they're sort of the same thing, I guess. One is the, the decline uh, of, of engagement in the church that leads to these economic realities, giving that is down, uh, churches that have to be closed, buildings that have to be sold, uh, economic model that no longer works of just taking donations from the offering plate, coupled with, and it's the same thing essentially, right? Decline engagement in in church period by people, right? So though those happening at the same time, and then COVID has just significantly furthered these questions around what even is the church's purpose when you can't get together in a building on Sunday, which we weren't able to do for about a year in most cases. So this moment is a, is a sort of reckoning moment for the church. And what is the church, what is the church and what is the church going to be in this world of nuns and duns and uh, in this moment that we're in. Right. And uh, so to me, what I am interested in lifting up is the fact that yes, these things are all happening, but the church is not actually broke both financially and spiritually, it might feel challenging and, and hard, and I, I don't discount that in any way in many places and in many congregations and in many settings. But the church, you might argue broadly, probably has more wealth today than it's ever had in history. If you just think of the enormous amount of wealth um, owned by, uh, by religious communities, the the Interfaith Coalition of Corporate Responsibility, which represents um, religious institutions that are invested in, um, that have investment assets, represents $4 trillion of assets under management, $4 trillion owned by religious communities. And that doesn't count property. 
Um, and so, you know, if you think about around the United States, certainly one of the, the, the most valuable spots of land in any city, in any community is going to be a church. And there's a whole lot of them. <laughs> um, and so in a sense, we aren't broke at all. We, we, we feel decline, but we have a lot of resources um, at our potential. And then I argue that at the same time, we have spiritual strength in that we can be the church in ways beyond simply a Sunday worship service, which again, I love, but um, we can be the church in the neighborhood. We can be the church in a grocery co-op. We can be the church in a sober housing facility. We can be the church um, in all those different ways uh, that, that, uh, that really meets people where they're at, engages them um, in the, the level of depth that they're interested in. Yeah, given that broad definition or ecclesiology, um, who who did you write the book for? I could imagine lots of different audiences, but I'm curious, um, as you were imagining this book, all the hard work that was required to draft and rewrite and get to final edits, who'd you have in mind? Who did you want to influence? Yeah, there's probably kind of three audiences Briefly, the you know the the investment world it's helpful for in the sense that it helps investment professionals in the investment world understand the church. I think a little bit, so it's a bit of translation between the different worlds. But primarily, it is for the church, certainly for practitioners, social entrepreneurs. I try to offer some suggestions for how to sort of engage in this work, and especially if practitioners are interested in utilizing impact investment or engaging in social enterprise that might involve investment, I'm sort of point them in some of the directions that can help them do that work. But really, my most passionate uh, desire is for leaders that have a decision-making impact uh, around the assets of the church, for that to be the primary reader or audience or, or the one that is most changed by it. And that actually is not as narrow as it might have first appeared. There's certainly investment committee members or CFOs of religious foundations or um, pension plans or whatnot. Those are all obviously would be very relevant because I would argue that that there's ways we can use some of those assets differently. But I'm a member of my pension plan, the Presbyterian pension plan, just as a member if all of the members of the pension plan of all of the different denominations start asking for their money to be invested differently, then it will be invested differently because it's our money in the end. It's all of our collective money. And we're all connected uh, in some way to funds. Many of us, I should say, are connected in some way, um, even if it's sort of tangentially, to invested assets. So ultimately, anyone who has some ability to make decisions about how their money is invested. And particularly the church's money is, is most interesting to me. Yeah, so the audience really does broaden when you start to think about the economics in a more holistic way, yeah. an investment in a, in a more holistic way. I want to return back to a statement you made earlier in the, in the interview. You were talking about, you know, where church leadership decides to invest its resources. Um, And you made a reference to Jeff Bezos um, at Amazon and um, which I, you know, is a really helpful idea that you, that you raise in the book. And I want to quote you, you say, 
uh, in the book, while money itself may be neutral, the application of money in the world is never neutral. What do you mean by this statement? Well, really that, (laughs) that uh, there is an idea, I think, that is sort of propagated in American capitalism that money is is neutral or that it just sort of it just sort of is a tool to some extent it is just a tool but its application in the world is not ever neutral it always has an impact uh, it has an impact um all throughout the sort of the, the stream that it's involved in from how money is earned the decisions we make about how do we earn money there are certainly ways to earn or gain money that are uh, more ethical or less or more faithful or less right how money is spent. We've we've t- discussed a lot, I think, in the last couple decades about fair trade and about you know the idea that the, w- what we buy impacts somebody who made it um, or where it came from or the supply chain that was involved in uh, getting it to us. The environmental impact of it, all of that is important. So the way we spend money really matters. The way we give money away matters. Who we give it to, how we give money. And certainly what I'm trying to lift up here in this book is that the way we save or invest money also matters. There's no way short of sticking it under your mattress for you to put money somewhere that doesn't have an impact in the world. Because it's not ever just sitting there. It's always being used. Even if it's in a bank, the bank is lending it back out or investing it themselves, and it's being put to work in something. And I think the first step is to just realize and recognize that, that it's being Something's happening with that money. Somebody's using that money. (laughs) And the question is, are they using it in a way that we like, that we feel good about, that we feel is consistent with our values or not? So I want to press a little bit more into this idea. You also write in the book that return to investors must be extracted from somewhere. And you, you, you go into some detail here. And I wonder if you could develop that idea for the listeners. I, I mean, I, I say that in a somewhat hyperbolic sense to sort of make a point. But the, uh, yes, the idea is that, I mean, you know, maybe from my childhood, money doesn't grow on trees. It doesn't really, actually. Money is generated um, by, uh, returns are generated by some activity going on. Some activity is happening. Something's being made, something's being sold, something's being, some services being offered or something's being literally extracted, like in the case of oil from the earth, for example. It's literally extracted out of the earth and then sold and then money's made. Facebook, I think, is another one of my, my favorite examples. Um, we are the customer, the user. I am. When I'm scrolling on Facebook, they're extracting money from my time, basically, from my eyeballs, spending time on there, which translates into advertising dollars, which translate into billions and billions and billions of dollars of revenue for Facebook. So there's always something going on where money is being created through some sort of activity and often a somewhat extractive activity from somewhere. And, and that's, the, that's, again, I think really important to keep in mind. That return I see on my financial statement or on my portfolio statement at the end of the month doesn't just come out of thin air or grow on a tree. It, something happened for that return to arrive. Yeah, and extractive doesn't always have to be bad. It can be good, but it, often is, it oftentimes is bad. It oftentimes will hurt another party to return value to, to the other party. Correct. I mean, so, you know, you can extract money from solar energy, for example. You can, the sun can 
produce solar energy and you can extract some value from this free source of energy. I don't think anyone's particularly concerned about the sun being harmed by extracting its energy. That's a, a green, very common now impact investment often actually in solar energy. So it's not always negative extractive, but but oftentimes, sometimes it is. I mean, if you can, you know, if you can uh, generate a really hefty return by um, outsourcing labor to a market where workers are vastly underpaid and and working 80 hours a week in terrible conditions, you can extract a whole lot of of wealth for somebody from the backs of those other bodies. And and you dive into this with a lot of. Um fluency, which I really appreciated. I mean, these ideas are complicated ideas. This is not a real complicated book in the sense that you don't have to be an expert in business um, to read this book and enjoy it. And one of the things I really appreciate about this book is you have a really great, it's worth the price of the book, glossary at the back, where you define a lot of these terms um, and uh, just many, many terms. It's probably a 10 or 15 page glossary that really goes into a lot of detail. And it's it's really an education and and has a lot of value outside of the story and some of the content that you develop through the book. It took me longer than I thought I was going to to write that glossary. I'm sure. Actually, <laughs> I, I'm sure. Well, um, so this is fascinating. I wonder as we as we kind of turn toward the end here, if you could um, talk a, a little bit about some of the barriers uh, to impact investing. If this is such a good idea, what gets in the way? We, shouldn't we all be doing this? Um, shouldn't it be easier? Yeah. I do have a whole chapter about these barriers, but I'll summarize them in two two broad categories. I think one is, I guess, since we're on uh, this podcast, I would say it's a spiritual barrier. It's 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 a it's an understanding of a different understanding of stewardship of what it means to be stewards of the resources um, and the wealth and the uh, and the assets that God has sort of lent to us in our in our time on Earth. And I, I would argue that that we're missing a little bit with some of our traditional understandings of of investing, and uh, and that we need to push a little bit harder on really thinking about the impact of how our money is is at work in the world, and and that's a spiritual act. That is not just simply a, a financial act. Um, in fact, it's it's a deeply ethical and theological question for us to wrestle with. Um, what is our money doing in the world, and the way we're using our money? I do think that's a barrier in the sense that I don't know that we've done that work. <laughs> um, I don't know even in my own life if I've done it enough. Um, I'm always having to ask that question when I make my own financial decisions. Uh, but that's probably the most important. Secondarily, there's a, there are a set of practical challenges, you might say, to, the, to this work, uh, to impact investing. Um, and often that, that centers around just inertia or sort of the way we've always done it. So, you know, to do impact investing, it can be done. It's, it's not impossible at all um, for a, an individual person or a church or an, an entity to, to get into impact investing. I'm the president of the board of Working Capital for Community Needs, which is a, an organization that as an impact investment organization, we take investment from individuals and churches and, uh, and we uh, invested in microfinance for the working poor in Latin America. Very easy, takes a few minutes to set up and to, to be putting your money to work in the lives of, of people, actual people in Latin America um, trying to, to grow their little businesses. So it can be done, but it's not 
as easy as just putting money in an index fund uh, in the stock market, for example, or getting on you know, um, Charles Schwab and making a trade um, on your phone. By and large, there are, it's starting to change, so I encourage people interested in this to look out for. Certainly screened, socially conscious investing has become easier and impact investing is over time as well. But the conduits between money, especially the church's money, and then people doing work on the ground are not super well developed yet. Um, so it does require more work, more effort to kind of do that. And if you're a less sophisticated or experienced investor, it's harder. And if, frankly, the opposite's true, if you're a very sophisticated investor, you probably have systems that you've been doing forever. And so it's like steering a, small, a ship slowly to shift um, to, to some of these other investments. So there's probably a particular profile of an investor that might be more willing to make that first move. Yeah, I guess. And I I think I would also say that what I've seen, and particularly actually in the the just general impact investing space, not faith-based, is people do best by starting with some of it. So I've seen a number of very large foundations, for example, will start by saying we're going to put 10% of our portfolio into impact or even 1%, right? 5%, 10%. You don't have to do the whole thing at once. That might be a bit challenging, but you can start with some of it. That's a good suggestion for people to, 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 to get into it, become more familiar with it, to learn how it works um, rather than trying to do it all at once. Very helpful. Is there anything else you would add about key components um, that that should be in place or must be in place um, for impact investing to be ex- successful? I think from the investor side, certainly I would highlight a focus on impact first over financial return. Again, that's really, for me, the most important piece. You'll often hear people say you can do good and do well, meaning you can make investments that make a lot of money and do really good work in the world. Maybe there's a few, solar energy. I think most of the time, those two things don't coincide quite so cleanly. And that if you're really interested in the community that you're serving, you're probably not going to be able to extract from them as much return as you're going to get from uh, Facebook, for example, which is quite extractive. Um, And so you're not going to get a market rate return very easily, while also really prioritizing social impact. It's just the way it is. But I would argue that the church's money in particular isn't there to get a market rate return. It's there to have a transformative effect on the world. And so that should be the priority. I think similarly and related, impact investing done well really thinks about everyone in the system. So typically, again, investors think of their position in the system. How do I gain the most return on my money at the least risk? Which means extracting that return and then passing risk to somebody else. (laughs) That's the best way to get a low risk, high return investment. From a financial perspective, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. You're going to do well. But from a social perspective or a theological perspective, that's highly questionable because the rest of the people in that system then are taking on risk and are giving up something. So I would suggest that to do impact investing well, um, faithfully, uh, we need to think about the risk return profile of all the players in the system. If we're doing opportunity zone investing in real estate, for example, 
there's a way that can be done that's highly, highly beneficial to the investor that does nothing for the neighborhood or the people that are in the neighborhood. There's also ways it can be done that are beneficial to everyone in the system. It might likely mean um, shifting a little bit of risk differently and perhaps accepting slightly lower returns for the investor. But in the end, the money then is at work improving the lives of everyone in the system, not just the person with the capital. That would be a great follow-up book, I think, to, to think about um, how we share risk, how we share return. That's a, that's a really important topic. And, um, and, you, and you get into some of this in, in the book, but I think there's a lot more to explore there. As we wrap up, I'd, I know our listeners would love to hear a bit about your involvement in Rooted Good. What's the mission of the organization and what role do you play and what other projects or ventures are you involved in? these days. Yeah. So Rooted Good is a, a, a social impact organization, nonprofit that exists to provide tools and resources for innovation that helps other social impact organizations, including churches, move from what we call seed to solution. So helps get things started, entrepreneurship, we have accelerator courses and that sort of thing, um, and helps then people align their money and mission measure their impact, articulate and measure their impact to do their work best. We typically work with intermediaries, so denominations, seminaries, networks, who then in turn license and use our tools and our curriculum to uh, provide to their end users, entrepreneurs, churches, and whatnot. It's fun. I'm a, I'm a co-founder. It's a, it's a new organization drawing upon experiences of uh, three founders who have 35 plus years of sort of social innovation experience and a whole slew of tools that we've, we've developed over the years. Um, but it's a lot of fun to, to be involved in some of that. At the moment, I'm, I'm really interested in this question of conduit between where funds lie in the church and where people are doing interesting work on the ground. So how do we get investment from where the money is into where it's needed? And I think there's still some room for more activity in that space, perhaps through particular kinds of impact investing funds. Um, so uh, my colleagues and I are looking at, at sort of working on some uh, white paper, sort of case for support, you know, building out some of the ideas of how that might be done, both sort of theologically faithfully, um, and then also practically what, if you translate these ideas I talk about in the book into an actual mechanism of, condu of a conduit of money. What does that look like? What could it look like? Uh, so that's sort of interesting. I'd really love to see uh, that kind of thing emerge. Anything else you're working on that's around the corner that you're dreaming about that you'd like to share? I think that's enough for the, <laughs> for the time being. Well, Mark, I'm, um, I'm just, it's a delight. And I'm really um, grateful for the work you do on this campus and for the opportunity to work alongside you in some indirect ways and just to really important message, and I think for the church more broadly, um, and for investors and everyone involved. So thank you for the good work that you're, you're taking on. Thank you. It's great to, great to talk to you. Great to be with you today. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear. Audio engineering by Andy Johnson and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, 
with the handle at Upper House UW.